0: You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. Karen Lin is running as the Democratic candidate for judge of the civil court in Queens, New York. Presently, Karen serves as court attorney referee in Kings County Surrogates Court. She has also served as a judge in the New York City Housing Court. Adjudicating disputes between landlord and tenants in the Bronx and Manhattan. We spoke about our current position as surrogate court referee, which involves estate settlement between family members and other matters such as guardianship, which was the central issue of the hashtag Free Brittany movement involving Britney Spears. Karen talked about what she loves about the legal profession and the challenges of working as a judge in New York City's housing court, which is one of the busiest courts in the nation. Karen also volunteers as co chair of the pro bono and community service committee of the Asian American Bar Association of New York. She also spearheaded the Queen's pro bono clinic and helped to set up and manage the Asian American Bar Association's remote legal clinic during the pandemic, to assist seniors and low-income families by phone. Here's our interview. Welcome to the podcast, Karen. Thank you,
1: Felicia. Thank you for having me.
0: I'd like to start by having you talk a little bit about your background and your upbringing. Um, since this is the Talking Taiwan podcast, and I know that you do have a connection to Taiwan, like if you could talk about your upbringing and your connection to Taiwan.
1: Sure. So I was born in Taiwan. And uh, I came here to the United States, specifically to Queens via JFK Airport uh, with my brother and my parents uh, when I was three years old. Uh, I grew up in Queens all my life. We lived in Flushing for a little bit and then we moved over to uh, Northeast Queens. Uh, when I was a young adult, I lived in Jackson Heights for about seven years and then uh, settled in Bayside where my husband and I uh, are raising our three uh, boys to men. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so I, my connection with Taiwan is, um, it's it, speaking, uh, you know, in the language was my first, and I used to spend summers with my grandmother. My uh, mom and my dad are each one of eight uh, oh, children. Wow. Yeah, big families. And I would say 90% of the their siblings are still all in Taiwan. So I remember just um, spending July and August uh, in Taipei, because New York just wasn't hot enough.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it was That's... wonderful to be able to connect with my grandmother while she was alive. And that kept the language, I think, and a lot of the culture and a lot of the um, uh, just the the things that were special to her and that were um, part of her identity, mm-hmm. I think I got exposed to during those summer vacations.
0: I'm curious to know... What did you want to be growing up? Did you, could you ever imagine that you would be doing what you're doing now in law and um, going up for being a judge?
1: So uh, when I was growing up, uh, I I wanted to be a secretary because okay. I wanted to wear. You know, I grew up in the 80s, so I wanted to wear the suits with the big (laughs) shoulder pads. So, I used to go into my my brother's room and say, do you have anything for me to type? Because I wanted to practice my my skills. And uh, and then I, I, you know, I remember uh, thinking that, you know, maybe law is something that could be useful. Because growing up in Queens in the 70s and 80s, there, there were no Asian-American lawyers that I knew. And certainly no women um, Asian-American lawyers. And so I thought, oh, maybe this is an area that could use some somebody. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that was sort of as far as I, uh, I thought it would go. And being a, a child of immigrant parents, you learn... Very quickly to speak on behalf of someone else um, because we were, you know, always the translators, always the interpreters, um, always the ones who kind of give voice to our parents um, in the mainstream culture.
0: Right. Well, that's true. I could see how that would put you in the position of being an advocate, sort of in a sort of way at an early age. I think that's a very common experience that a lot of us can relate to being second or first generation. So it was pretty clear then when you uh, went to school that you were going to go to law school, that path was pretty clear to you? Yes, yes. Okay. What is it about the legal profession that you enjoy or you find the most meaningful?
1: I think in America so much of our, um, how our fabric is woven together in how we can exist uh, in the same space with other human beings, especially in New York City, um, is uh, it, there's an unwritten um, compact that people have that's when it breaks down, um, what still holds us together are sets of, of laws um, that, you know, codify our expectations for how people ought to treat one another. Mm-hmm. Um And so I think that for me, I've always been a people person. And um, when you are a lawyer, if you're a good lawyer, you're someone who cares about um, helping people with their problems. And I think lawyers bring hope. They're 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 not always uh, they're always the butt of jokes. Yes, but, uh, but there's always a legal question someone has. <laughs> and if you can, I think uh, you know the law is um, unnecessarily complicated. Uh, the language that we use is uh, unclear, and uh, and we should be trending towards greater clarity um, instead of the other way.
0: Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about your current position as the surrogate court referee. Um, I read in your bio, it says that you conduct hearings in guardianship and kinship matters. You facilitate settlement between family members in contested probate and estate administration proceedings. So to me, that sounds like it could be kind of high drama with (laughs) conflicts with family members. and. You know, exclu- excuse the comparison, but as a layperson, it also makes me think of things like the People's Court. <laughs> right? Um, so can you talk a little bit about what you do and if it is like that? <laughs>
1: of course, of course. No, so um, surrogates court is, uh, it used to be called the, the, I think, the Court of Widows and Orphans. So it's the place where you go when a loved one has passed away and, uh, you know, much of our English law comes from, um, I'm sorry, part of, much of our American law has um, English roots uh, in English common law. And in England, uh, you, you know, Women did not have the right to own property. And so, uh, when, uh, you know, the, the man of the household passed away, then effectively the, the wife would have to go to court, uh, for what she needed because she did not have the ability to inherit. Um, that is no longer the case which is good yes but uh as a result that's how the name came about you're a surrogate you are you kind of step in the place of uh and so the there is um there is a lot of drama potentially because if there's a a will that was left the that document has to be brought to surrogates court And the surrogate's court judge has to determine whether or not that will is valid or not, um, if it was properly uh, executed, if there was any undue influence, if there was any fraud. And only after the court determines that this will is good can its contents be given effect. And so you will have uh, sometimes cases where there are multiple children, but only one inherits. Uh, or even in the other way around, there are two children and each inherit equally. And yet one will still object because mm. of... Uh, what transpired during the life of, of, you know, the mom or the dad or the uncle or the aunt, mm-hmm. um, and you know, it's a it's a uh, a contest for for property, but mm-hmm. embroiled in that and within sort of the subtext is, is all of the familial relationships that have either gone mm-hmm. well or ill uh, mm-hmm. that kind of are brought to bear, uh, and sometimes property is kind of proxy for, um, uh, value and, uh, you know, love or, um, worth. Mm Uh, and I suppose that may be true in life, but it's certainly true, uh, in the surrogate's court. So Mm -hmm. you, you really, I think, so what I do as a referee is, uh, I, it's, I have the responsibility of, uh, uh conducting hearings when the cases cannot be settled. Um, So if there is a first cousin who comes forward and says, I'm related to the person who passed away, uh, and so please give me their property. Um, They have to first prove how they're related. So they will produce a family tree and then they have to show that everybody else who has a a greater right to inherit uh, is no longer uh, with us. So, um, those are kind of interesting. Sometimes yeah. you'll, you'll have people who are on the paternal side meet, mm-hmm. um, relatives on the maternal side for the first time. And it's, so it's a little bit of a reunion. Uh, and so those are the kinship hearings. And when the parties can't resolve, um, matters, uh, and it goes to either a hearing or sometimes it goes to what's called motion practice. Um, the surrogate court, uh, in addition to handling the will contests, um, also handles uh, guardianships over adults who have developmental disabilities. Oh, so see. somebody who may have Down syndrome or somebody who may have autism, uh, when they reach the age of 18, they are a legal adult, which means that they have the uh, the right to make all decisions about their mm-hmm. life. If someone in their life, usually the parents, but not necessarily, Mm-hmm. feels that the uh, the individual is incapable of doing that, um, then they will bring a guardianship proceeding. And so uh, my role as a referee is to hold a hearing to determine whether um, a guardianship is needed or not. Um, what is the capacity of the person over whom guardianship is sought? Mm-hmm. And, you know, that is... Those are actually extraordinary proceedings because you see... Uh, how you you really meet extraordinary families in that context. Oh, sure.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. Also, since we had the hashtag Free movement, of course, a lot of people know what guardianship cases are. Do you think that that case has actually changed anything with law regarding guardianship or how that's going to be treated going forward?
1: I I think that the... That case really uh, shined a spotlight on this area of law that that uh, very few people um, had any understanding of. Yeah. You know, certainly um, with with in her case, uh, you know, her guardianship was imposed through a different kind of a different. Um, statutory framework um, mm-hmm. because she doesn't have a disability it was mm-hmm. uh, you know but based on the allegation that she couldn't handle her own affairs mm-hmm. but the effect is similar yeah. um, with the surrogates court and you know for a long long time there was this um, treatment of people with disabilities uh, that they were incapable uh, simply because they have a diagnosis Mm-hmm. And I think what that uh, what the case shone light on is the emerging understanding that people who have disabilities have different abilities, um, functional, cognitive, and it's not a one size fits all. And everyone is presumed to have capacity until they're proven otherwise. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important shift.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting because I think it, uh, we need to understand the nuances and there's a lot yes. of talk about this term called neurodiversity, so yes. people need to understand the uh, range of people's abilities. Definitely. What do you think have been some of the toughest moments of your career to this point and, and maybe in contrast some of the highlights?
1: Mm, that's a really good question. So... I would say a tough moment was being a judge in housing court in New York City, and because the stakes are so high for for both sides. You know, for um, tenants who are on the brink of losing their home, mm-hmm. housing court is usually the... last stop before homelessness, Mm -hmm. Uh, and on the flip side for especially small landlords who maybe own a one or two family house and they rely on rent to pay their mortgage, uh, balancing those interests uh, is is always a daily challenge um, because the stakes are high. But it was also uh, an enormous privilege um, to be able to be in that position. Uh, And so each case is always one that um, I never took lightly. Um, And a high point, I would say, there was this um, one day I was sitting in Bronx Housing Court and I had just finished... A case, and generally I would range between 80, sometimes 90 cases a morning. Wow! And after one of the cases, there was this uh, uh, elderly woman um, who came up to the bench, and uh, she was African American woman, and she just looked at me and she said, "I'd like to think that something I did in the 60s helped put you where you are now." And I, I looked at her and said, "It's it absolutely did, ma'am. Thank you for for fighting for all of us." And it was such, um, it, it was such an uh, for me and uh, just an amazing moment of connection um, that's, and recognition. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that's definitely yeah, a high. We point. we need to have
0: more. Um... Mutual understanding and uh, mutual support yeah, across uh, all of uh, all different minorities and groups.
1: I was listening to um, mm-hmm. the confirmation hearing for Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and there was a, a a part where she shared about how um, she was born in 1970. And her parents, who grew up in Florida, they grew up at a time where there was lawful segregation. So when they went to school, there were the students were not together. Right. Um, but for her, as a child who who was born in 1970, mm-hmm. uh, she was lucky to um, be able to reap the 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 fruits of the struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking, I'm. I'm born in 1970, and the the struggle of the civil rights movement that led to the Immigration and Nationalization Act in 1965 that uh, opened up um, uh, immigration visas um, for people like my dad um, allowed us to come here, and so I too am, am the lucky uh, and fortunate um, beneficiary of of that um, of that struggle
0: right right um, and yeah thank you for sharing that uh, your experience in the housing court because I actually wanted to ask you about that because I've actually been on both sides of the coin as someone that's been a renter and also someone that uh, has an apartment and has um, rented to a room to somebody and I didn't learn about um, certain how the law works for landlords and tenants in New York until I had a situation with a difficult roommate, and I found out about the 30-day law, Mm -hmm. and there was a pretty high-profile case. It was like the number one digital article in The Cut and number two in the New York magazine about this case where there was a woman who had a apartment in West Village and she and her partner owned this apartment and her partner went overseas and then they decided to rent a room to this woman who ended up only paying a month and then to make the long story short is like overstayed and she's had a very hard time going through the court system to get her out she actually did try to serve this woman and had the police come within the 30 days but the woman had a daughter who's a minor so when the police came they weren't able to exercise and make her leave the premises so i'm just wondering as you alluded to before these situations especially in the case when there is an individual landlord that has a private home and they're renting a space in there and they get into a situation like this. What do you think we can do in order to reform or change the laws to support people like that in in terms of New York? Because New York is very tenant-friendly laws, and I understand why that's necessary. But we also, as you mentioned, you know, we need to consider what it's like for the smaller landlords, the
1: individuals, the homeowners. Uh, right. So the the tension, right, between um, tenants and landlords have uh, has existed um, since the the boom of real estate, you know, in New York <laughs> yes. City, right, yes. first in Manhattan and then stretched out to Brooklyn and parts of Queens and mm-hmm. then. You know, eventually all over, uh, and it's it's competing, um, competing interests, and uh, and that balancing is something that uh, you know every every two years when there is the the rent guidelines board has to decide whether or not there's going to be an increase for those who are rent stabilized or rent controlled. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, that tension is uh, in full view again. Yeah. So. Um, you, you ask a question that is on a lot of people's minds and, um, it is a question for the lawmakers and, uh, not, not for the judiciary, which is an unsatisfying answer. Mm-hmm. But the reason I, I give it is because one of the unique things about running for judge is that there are, uh, there are things that we cannot say and express that other elected officials who are running for office can. Mm-hmm. So uh, any uh, current laws, any pending legislation, um, any policy issues that may uh, make its way before uh, a judge, uh, those are all strictly prohibited. Uh, I, judicial candidates are prohibited from being able to uh to state their view on oh, those things okay so so uh, again unsatisfying answer yes. I know <laughs> um, uh, but it I think it it bears saying that um you know the the judge's role is to uh, take what the law says and apply it um And it's that branch of government that's supposed to be without politics, meaning whoever walks in through the courtroom doors, they're neither viewed as Republican or Democrat. Um, They are seen as two people who have a conflict that needs the court to help resolve. Um, And so, you know, in some ways, I'm, I'm glad I'm, seeking this branch of government <laughs> I I think my job is uh, a little bit um, more straightforward in applying the law but uh, you know laws are there's there's just process and then there's just results and theoretically if the process is just then the results should also be just um, it's not always the case but I think it it makes a difference to have uh, judges on the bench who understand the tension mm-hmm. and don't 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 take it lightly.
0: Mm-hmm. So, if there's to be any reform, it's in the hands of the lawmakers or perhaps private citizens who want to advocate for this.
1: And private citizens who want to advocate for a change in the law, mm-hmm. they would. Uh, They would lobby their elected officials.
0: I'm wondering how do you think being a judge in the New York City Housing Court has prepared you for being a civil court judge, and how is it similar or different
1: from that role? Mm -hmm. So the I think you know Housing Court in New York City is arguably the busiest court in the nation, rivaled only or perhaps exceeded by family court. Um, They are the the courts where, you know, you have really everyday people. Uh, A lot of times there's no representation, um, Mm. although there's a right to counsel law that Mm -hmm. has changed that landscape a little bit. And so how it prepares you is to be able to manage your courtroom. Um, there are a lot of cases to be heard, and there's a lot of people uh, in this a limited space. So being able to um, having the discipline to do your homework in advance to review your cases, your case files, so that at 930 sharp when the um, when the people are there, the judge is also ready to go. Um, and that makes a big difference in moving the calendar forward so people aren't stuck there, um, not just all morning, but then all afternoon mm-hmm. as yeah. well is very important. Knowing how to manage that um, mm-hmm. is, you know, well serves uh, the judge who's going to go into civil court or any other court. Um, the ability to... Uh, I find um, com- uh, reach a settlement between individuals, um, which is actually not so much a skill that um, came out of housing court, but more so a skill that is has been um, honed in surrogates court uh, mm-hmm. is, I think, uh, very important in civil court where mm-hmm. there's a lot of um, disputes between two individuals, you know, under $50,000. Mm-hmm. And to be able to reach a settlement is uh, helps resolve the case faster than having it go to trial.
0: And now for a short break. Hello, listeners. We're going to be experimenting with some shorter-form content, under 20 minutes long, and we'd like to hear from you. Would you like to listen to shorter episodes? What would you like to hear more of or less of? Email us at podcast at We also have a special announcement for all of our donors, past, present, and future. We're giving all of our donors exclusive first listening access to upcoming interviews with Karen Lin, Democratic Candidate for Justice of the Civil Court in Queens, New York, Qin Yang, a multidisciplinary artist who was recently inducted into the New York Foundation for the Arts Hall of Fame. Michelle Kuo, an attorney, activist, and author of Reading with Patrick, which is a runner-up for the Dayton Literary Peace Prize and the Goddard Riverside Stefan Russo Book Prize for Social Justice. Ed Lynn, author of Death Doesn't Forget, and Joe Henley, author of Migrante, If you want exclusive access to these episodes and more, support Talking Taiwan by making a contribution to our GoFundMe campaign. We are so grateful for our growing listenership and all the support that we've been receiving. Now, back to the episode. I'm also interested in um, something that you mentioned earlier, because I recently interviewed an American lawyer who's based in Taiwan, and I learned something when he talked about how the system we have in the US is different from the one in Taiwan and Mm. much of the rest of the world. And I learned Mm. that term that in the US we have what's called the Anglo-American system or the common law system, Mm. right? Which is Mm -hmm. based on uh, England and former British Commonwealth nations Mm -hmm. also use that system. And so from what I understand, in the anglo-american system judges have the ability to shape laws through their rulings which is different from what they call the civil law system which is used in the other parts of the world so i think that it's pretty unique the important role that judges have in the anglo-american common law system would you like to share some thoughts about that or expand on that because you know clearly there's a unique importance of judges in the American legal system Mm
1: -hmm. sure so you know the when I was growing up I I remember being kind of confused over you know what was a law and and how did laws um, come to be formed right Mm -hmm. so in in the United States we have laws that are and and then there's kind of like 10 different names for laws you know there's regulations there's statutes there's and and so um here you have laws that are passed by the legislative branch and then there are laws that are um where where the courts attempt to apply the laws to a particular set of facts, and uh, the the result is um, is binding on that particular case, but that ruling also then affects cases that come along later on that have a similar set of facts. Mm-hmm. So, um, for example, you know, New York City can pass a law that says. Um, that sidewalks must be kept in good repair and if there's a defect in the sidewalk then the abutting homeowner meaning the person who owns that property next to the sidewalk will be responsible if somebody gets injured right so that seems like a fairly straightforward law that was passed Mm -hmm. by the by the by the legislative branch then somebody comes along and they trip and fall on a sidewalk right. and they turn around and they look and they see oh it's because you know the part of the sidewalk was raised so does that so is that a defect in the sidewalk well technically it is a defect in the sidewalk um, but you know if it was a if it was one inch um, are we going to hold the homeowner responsible um, for that, uh, or are we going to say, no, that's kind of, you know, a de minimis, kind of a minimal, um, versus if the defect, were, you know, was four inches, um, then are we going to hold the homeowner responsible? And so within those, uh, w- within one inch and four inches is common law, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so judges will then uh, apply on a case-by-case basis, uh, whether they they uh, believe that the homeowner should have liability or not. And then based on that ruling, it will affect then other trip and falls that come later. You know, what if it's, uh, you know, three inches, the defect, or what if it's one and a quarter inch? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I think, you know, you have some not flexibility, but um, it it allows for laws to not necessarily be so rigid. Um, yes, yeah, some
0: interpretation.
1: Yes, yes, exactly.
0: I see that you've also done a lot of pro bono work. You volunteer as the co-chair of the Pro Bono Community Service Committee of the Asian American Bar Association. And during the pandemic, did you set up the... Asian American Bar Association's Remote Legal
1: Clinic. Yes, together yeah, with my committee. Can you talk about that work? Sure, sure. So just a shout out, the, uh, we call it PBCS, it's like PB&J, uh-huh. but Pro Bono uh-huh. Community Service Committee. Uh-huh. They are the best group of, uh, of attorneys uh, that I've ever met. These are folks who, a lot of them work in the public sector, some uh-huh. work in the private sector, and uh, in their spare time, um, uh, they like to use law to help people that's that's their idea of fun and so, <laughs> so during the the right before the uh, so the Asian American Bar Association of New York um, they've got I think 40 plus committees and so the pro bono committee is is one uh, and even before the pandemic they had uh, created these um, free legal clinics where they would pair volunteer attorneys with um, community members, mm-hmm. many of whom had limited English proficiency, and then also pair a law student who didn't have the expertise to give, you know, reliable information, but had uh, language ability mm-hmm. um, to provide interpretation. And so that sort of, you know, team um, model uh, would uh you know we would meet once a month uh, in Manhattan uh, and people from the community would come with just you know whatever legal questions that they had Um, we weren't giving legal advice Uh, what we were doing is explaining the process and helping Uh, individuals kind of navigate the process and then pairing them with available resources you know a lot of times there are uh, there are organizations out there that can help but Mm -hmm. you know that's not necessarily known Um, so for us I think as sort of this 1.5 generation to be able to have the advantage of knowing what are the nonprofit groups that are out there what are the programs that are out there and then to bridge that with you know, the first generation, um, which who have need mm-hmm. um, is uh, a role that I think we can be helpful with. So uh, we were just about to launch the Queen's Clinic mm-hmm. um, when the pandemic hit. And we realized that everything had shut down yeah. so that if you had trouble figuring out what to do before, it just got a whole lot worse yeah. because you couldn't physically go mm-hmm. to an agency or to a senior center um, mm-hmm. and ask your questions anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody was in their home. So the first thing that we did was we um, um, set up digital resources and we had hoped that you know, folks maybe could access their computer from their home or use their phone. And uh, we set up COVID-19 resources uh, for anything from, you know, court Closures to um, f- where to get free meals. Mm-hmm. To um, it was, if you recall, a time when the tra- there were all that you know the immigration laws mm-hmm. were shifting from mm-hmm. week to week in terms mm-hmm. of where you could travel to, where you can travel yeah. to, and you know the the visa situation mm-hmm. um, was also in a state of flux. So. There was information there on immigration law and, uh, you know, housing uh, with respect to eviction moratoriums and what that meant. And um, and it was translated into um, Chinese, Korean, uh, Japanese. Um, and I think that Chinese was simplified and traditional. Uh-huh. So... Um, And all of that information was compiled by volunteer attorneys. You know, uh, immigration lawyer did the immigration Mm -hmm. part. Housing lawyer Mm -hmm. did the housing part. Um, And so uh, then we realized, okay, once people, you know, have information, they have follow-up questions. And so (laughs) the the need for a a remote clinic emerged. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we we worked on a shoestring budget. Uh, I think we used Google voice numbers, kind of one for each mm-hmm. um, language. Mm-hmm. And, you know, folks would call and leave a message. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. again, we would pair the volunteer attorney with the law student to provide mm-hmm. the language mm-hmm. access and then return uh, and the call and give assistance mm-hmm. uh, over the phone for, for individuals. And we did that for, gosh, uh, I want to say maybe six, seven, eight months or so. Um, And it was, it was a challenge because, Mm -hmm. you know, I think COVID affected everybody. Yes. So, um, you know, sometimes morale grew lower. uh, Mm -hmm. And there was at one point, you know, Volunteers, there were many in the beginning, and then it sort of waned. And yeah. Then. Um, but you know, that's why this committee is just so incredible mm-hmm. because um, they, you know, they persisted because because they knew, you know, that people needed help. Yeah. So um, that it was it was a privilege to be part of that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's incredible. I mean, how do you do all this, Karen? I mean. <laughs> Doing all this, my house looks work. like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something's got to go, right? <laughs> no, but seriously, really, I mean, you must have a lot of energy, or you have a lot of good partners, or people that you delegate, or like, is you know, aside from your full-time responsibilities, um, setting up a remote clinic and doing this pro bono work, how do you balance all that?
1: Yeah, that's um, that's always the that's always the question, and uh, I have to I have to steal a quote from um, Michael Bublé. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so recently, he was interviewed, and uh, and somebody asked him, how do you how do you balance? You know, the very same question you're asking, and he says there is no balance. It's just right. there there are seasons, and some things um, get more attention and other mm-hmm. things kind of suffer mm-hmm. and again I feel like I'm just giving you unsatisfying answers today Felicia <laughs> because nobody wants to hear that um, but I think uh, what I've learned is that you have to decide what, what, is, what is most important to you in mm-hmm. that season and no one else can, can claim that for you Right. You know, like you have to decide that. And for me, um, stepping down from the housing court bench, I had to decide that. Um, mm-hmm. And even if when everyone else says, you know, that's that's not what you're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. um, I, I often try to tell my kids that, you know, feminism is about being able to make choices, being able to have choices and be able to make them on your own terms. Um, and so. You know, uh, I think when I was uh, younger, I used to think, oh, you just do everything at the same time. You know, (laughs) you have your career, you Mm -hmm. have your family, you um, get to do, like, cool stuff. And I think you you eventually do over the arc of your lifetime. um, But some things get more attention, which means other things get less attention. And and that's okay. You Mm -hmm. just have to decide what's going to get your attention in that season
0: oh no i appreciate that That, that's very real talk because we always hear this thing about balance but maybe there isn't uh, any sort of thing as balance because who is ever in perfect balance right yeah and i see that uh the term for a civil court judge is a tenure term yes is that right yeah yes And um, so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what a civil court judge has the power to do and what can be accomplished in that time and and maybe if it's possible if you could give me an example of what are some significant things that have been accomplished by civil court judges.
1: Sure. So a civil court judge has jurisdiction or power over matters that are under fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars so you know for example if you hire somebody to you know fix your roof and it's a twenty five thousand dollar contract and mm-hmm. they you know they come the first day and they take off all the shingles and then they they don't ever come back so right. you call them and they won't pick up your phone call um, you write them an angry letter they ignore you then you will have to um, seek help in the court system. The court that you would go to would be civil court if it's under fifty thousand um, dollars. so in in ten years' time, um, what I would love to see is greater access um, for for people who um, don't necessarily, uh, have an attorney. I think there are there are legal services that are available for um free legal services that are available through legal services type organizations um if you are within a within this extremely unrealistically low income bracket. Um and then you have, you know, individuals who ha- are are more affluent uh, who can afford an, uh, an attorney. And then you have a lot of people that are just kind of in that middle area, right? So I would love to see, um, you know, more um, help centers, more robust um, um, uh, assistance for uh, people who fall into that middle mm-hmm. range, Um and I think that would help resolve um, conflict you know, the reason what that the reason that people are brought to court in the first place, you know better. Um, mm-hmm. The other areas that civil court has jurisdiction over is usually no fault insurance cases uh, as well as credit card consumer debt cases mm-hmm. and uh, small claims court is also within that uh, within the civil court um, mm-hmm. roof. Okay. And um,
0: you mentioned that when you decided to leave the housing court, that seemed to be an unpopular decision. Can you say why that is? Was that seen as unpopular because maybe it was not good for your career?
1: (laughs) Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. Everyone said y- you are. You're. You know. That's it. You're tanking your career. That this is. You know. The trajectory should be you stay, and then you. Um, you know. You kind of seek um, more opportunity, and uh, I. You know. Um, and it was. It, you know. It's there. There are not that. There are not that many Asian American judges mm-hmm. on the bench. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, uh, it was, um, just inc- uh, an incredible, um, blessing to have been appointed. Uh, mm-hmm. and so, uh, you know, my mom said, What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I hope she's not listening to the podcast. <laughs> mom, you're always right. Um,
0: <laughs> no, but look at where you are now. <laughs>
1: you know, it's like I said, you, you, uh, me, um, no one can tell you um, what's in your gut, right? So I think for me, what was, um, it kept, what kept uh, going over and over in my head was, you know, this expression that, um, you know, they're only little ones. And so um, I think for me that was very compelling. And it's, uh, I, re- I remember someone saying, well, you know, you could hire somebody uh, to take care of your kids. And, you know, you could hire like a pediatric nurse to take care of your kids. And, um, and lots of people do that and uh and for me i have great respect um for the parents that uh, have been able to maintain working outside the home and and uh maintaining their their family uh, uh but i think if you want to do it your way then then i felt like i had to be present mm-hmm. uh, so although they would have probably turned out you know, more like healthy. if, if
0: I wasn't home. <laughs> oh, don't say
1: that. What is healthy? You know? Right. What is healthy? <laughs> so your kids were young at that time. Yeah, I had uh, three kids, five and under.
0: Oh, um, I see. Oh, wow. Back
1: then, yeah, yeah. So um, the housing court process, appointment process, uh, took uh, it took unusually long that year. Mm-hmm. That um, when I. Put in my application in August. I I had two kids, Mm -hmm. and uh, when I was appointed uh, in August a year later, I had three kids. (laughs) Wow! Wow! um, It was yeah, it was a long
0: yeah yeah. I was no,
1: I almost had three kids that I was uh, I think eight and a half months pregnant. Uh
0: Wow! Yeah, that's not ideal timing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So. I think it's important to have uh, like a mentor, a role model. Did you Have you had some good mentors who could give you advice perhaps at a time like this or in different time, different points in your career?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I have to say that, you know, I, I've been um, really blessed with um, women who um, have spoken um, like Wisdom and mm-hmm. clarity, uh, mm-hmm. and served as examples. Um, it really does take, uh, it, you know, you need a crew, and you know, some somebody who's uh, kind of older than you, and mm-hmm. somebody who's kind of younger than you, and somebody who's, you know, not in the legal field. Um, some people who are of faith, and uh, and you. And so that has made enormous difference. I think um, when I had I had worked for a judge for um, seven years, and she, you know, always was my the person who would give me um, advice about, you know, how to how to speak up for myself. You know, I was so used to speaking up for other people that um, speaking up for myself was something that was less familiar. Uh, And, you know, in terms of whether I should, you know, stay on the bench or or leave, you know, I had just these very wise women in my church who, um, you know, would give me kind of um, some some, uh, kind of ways to think about it and, um, you know, would pray for me, uh, which matters to me. Uh, and, you know, and I would say my mom, um, but, you know, in hindsight, I know everything my mom says is right. But in that <laughs> moment, <laughs> there's a fair amount of rebellion.
0: Sure, <laughs> sure, sure. There's always that tension between parents and kids. Um, so how do you find these mentors? Uh, like, do you seek them out or or? Is it nat- something that naturally happens? Like you said you were working for a judge so that person was your superior and so then they were naturally in that role of being your role model or do you seek some of these people out? Yeah.
1: No, that's um, – you know, I what, looking back, I realized all of my bosses except my first job have been women. And it, oh, wow. it's not – right? It, it's kind of – it's interesting because I don't think it was ever a conscious choice. Mm-hmm. Um but I also realize that um I I I've, I've had the privilege of working for um people whom I, I have great respect for. Um and so when you when you respect the people that you work for, I think you are kind of naturally drawn to wanting to um seek them out as mentors. Um but, uh, you know, I I like being inspired by other people. Mm-hmm. So um, whether that's going to a, uh, you know, a talk or a seminar um, mm-hmm. and listening, and if somebody says something that I really like, um, I go up to them afterwards, you know, and just say, hey, I really liked when you said that. I think everybody could use encouragement and, you know, even like um, well-spoken, famous people, um and and then that's a connection. Uh, and that that's sort of kind of one way. Um, and sometimes, you know, I, I feel like we sometimes we tend to be an island and mm-hmm. we you know we think that these are kind of private things and um, but I find that it's there's so many people who have, who are going through the same things that we're going through? That um, we—it's a—it's a disservice to ourselves and and to the other person to just kind of keep it bottled in. Um, and I certainly think coming out of COVID, um, we we definitely all need to um, just um, be vulnerable to each other. You know, mm-hmm.
0: sounds like some good advice for young legal professionals on how they might be able to find their way in their career path or to find mentors or people that they could get some advice from or make alliances with. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Mm -hmm. And pick people who you like, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That goes a long way. So is it your ultimate goal to go to the
1: Supreme Court and be a Supreme Court judge? There are trial level courts and Mm -hmm. then there are appellate level courts. Okay. Um, and I think of it like a wedding cake. Okay. You know? So you know the biggest, the first, the bottom tier, right? Those are the trial level courts. Those mm-hmm. are your housing courts, your civil courts, your surrogates mm-hmm. courts, all mm-hmm. the courts that I've worked in. Mm-hmm. And that's when you know someone um, has a um, has a problem with, and they that's the they go to the first level, the first cake level. Right. And the first uh, tier. Yes, exactly. And the judge there, um, listens to your story and then, uh, researches the law to figure out what law applies to your story mm-hmm. and then makes a decision applying the law to the facts of your case. Uh, and who, if you, one side's gonna win and one side's not. So the Mm -hmm. side that doesn't win may appeal that decision to that second tier cake. And it's smaller because not every case that gets decided gets appealed, Mm -hmm. right? And then whoever uh, loses on that level um, can can appeal one more time to the top smallest layer. But -hmm. that's not as of right. That is, you need to have permission from that highest level, which in New York is called the Court of Appeals. Mm -hmm. Um, So... When you get to the second level and the and the top level, you're you're not seeing um, your everyday person anymore. Right. You're reviewing the the record um, of what happened in the lower court. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of reviewing transcript and mm-hmm. uh, seeing if the law was applied or misapplied. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on one level, it is very interesting mm-hmm. because you get to set precedent, right? right? Because whatever you decide on that second and top level, you know, becomes binding on -hmm. on that first level. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and some interesting legal issues. Um, But I think I would miss the people contact, you know?
0: Thank you for explaining that so eloquently. That may have cleared up a lot of things for people for how all this works. Is there anything else that you wanted to share that I haven't asked you or that we haven't covered in this interview?
1: Um, I really would encourage, um, I think, our community to, to get more engaged in in how voting works um, in finding out who is in your neighborhood mm-hmm. um, we are in queens 25 26 27% of the population uh, and yet um, we we are not visible um, in decision making seats Mm -hmm. and we need to become more, um, we need to get better at this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, So I would really encourage, um, you know, everyone who's listening to just, you know, start small, just kind of, you know, Google, um, you know, vote NYC, like who's going to be on my ballot and, uh, you know, t- take like 10 minutes to to search them up on their social media mm-hmm. and and start start getting involved and then show up to vote. Um, because if our community starts doing that, um, I think it can make an enormous difference.
0: So how can people support you?
1: So I have a uh, uh, a contested race, which means that um, on June 28th, that's my election day. Mm-hmm. So um, on June 28th, uh, if so, if if uh, if anybody has not registered yet to vote, it's not too late. They, mm-hmm. Their homework today is to go register to vote. <laughs> um, I would ask them to consider registering as a Democrat because um, I'm running in the Democratic uh, primary. And mm-hmm. so on June 28th. Um, only registered people in the same party can vote for me I see. Um, and then I would say if you have some time if go on my website karenlin2022.com if you like what you read um, I urge you to volunteer uh, there's a lot of different ways that you can um, help us to you know kind of be boots on the ground to kind of knock on doors hand out things if you don't like if you're not a people person, you're kind of a high mm-hmm. introvert. We, mm-hmm. you know, you can help us with, um, some text banking and, uh, some behind the scenes work. Um, but I could, uh, I would appreciate the support and, um, and I think it's going to be an exciting race. You have to live in Queens to vote for me. It's a Queens-wide, trip, but you can live anywhere in Queens. And if you don't live in Queens, I'm sure you know somebody who does. <laughs> there so you go. Challenge yes. is think of five people who live in Queens <laughs> and reach out to them and tell them to to go register.
0: Great. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate that. It's been very interesting and informative. And I hope that it's helped my listeners get to know you a little better. So for people in Queens, if you haven't registered to vote, thinking about voting, take a look at Karen's site.
1: It's been such a pleasure to chat with you, and um, thank you for giving me the space to be able to, to share.
0: Yeah, my pleasure. I've been speaking with Karen Lynn, Democratic candidate for judge of the civil court in Queens, New York. Now it's time for you to show us some love we just found out that you can rate us on Spotify. Or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Audible, leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin.
1: Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.